Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, Women's History Channel. I'm your host, Nicole Bourbonnet, an Associate Professor of International History and Politics at the Graduate Institute, Geneva. I'm joined today by Dr. Sarah Matheson, an Assistant Professor of History at George Washington University. Dr. Matheson is author of Reproduction Reconceived, Family Making and the Limits of Choice after Roe v. Wade published by University of California Press in 2021. The book illustrates how legal barriers, incarceration, for-profit health care, disease, and poverty have jeopardized family making, defined as the practices, costs, and labors of creating and maintaining parent-child relations. The book is a stirring indictment of state neglect and its disproportionate impact on marginalized communities in the decades following Roe v. Wade. So welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, so I wanted to start, as usual, by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Yeah, thank you. So um, as you noted, I am I teach and research at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., um, and I'm jointly appointed with History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies my, which is great because formally my PhD training is actually in American studies. And so I was very happy to um, land a position that could allow me to keep um, thinking interdisciplinarily about the topic of reproduction in the 20th century. Um, I think, you know, this book comes out of my dissertation. Um, so it's been many years that I have been thinking about this. And I want to, in answering this question, like be very transparent with listeners about how, especially when a book beco- comes from a dissertation, how many different phases or forms it takes. So the very, very start of the project came, um, you know, I was teaching a class as a graduate student in 2012 um, on reproduction, you know, after Roe, a small seminar. And that was also around the time that there was a lot of discussion in Congress um, about the quote-unquote war on women that Democrats were accusing Republicans of waging, particularly around things like obviously abortion restrictions, which before 2021, 2011 had the highest number of abortion restrictions placed at the state level, um, but also the contraceptive mandate in the Affordable Care Act were these sort of lightning rods for debate that brought reproductive rights and specifically the right not to have children into you know, public debate in um, a prominent way. And I was thinking about, at the same time, I was watching kind of the war on women rhetoric emerge. I was teaching this class from a reproductive justice framework, um, which for listeners who aren't aware is um, a framework that was 
created in the early 1990s by a group of 12 Black women who were trying to kind of move beyond abortion as the end-all be-all of reproductive choice or reproductive freedom. And the RJ framework asks um, us to think about what society would need to look like if it was a right not to have children, but also a right to have children and raise those children in healthy and safe communities. And that was how I was approaching the class. And I was also collaborating as part of that class with an organization in Massachusetts that is no longer doing that particular work, but it was called Prison Birth Project. And it was providing doula services in a prison um, for people identified as women um, in Western Massachusetts. And I actually brought someone from that project to speak to my class. And so I was trying to reconcile, I suppose, the immense visibility of the um, idea that abortion was still kind of abortion and now contraception were these main, if not sole aspects of reproductive rights in the U.S., with the fact that, you know, there were, by this point, we've had the reproductive justice framework for um, 20, nearly 20 or more than 20 years. And there are all of these projects addressing the intersection of reproductive rights and, for example, mass incarceration, um, reproductive rights and police violence, reproductive rights and environmental pollution, and I guess I started thinking about what would it look like to try to trace this conflict of debate back prior to the moment when we even have the term reproductive justice or the frame reproductive justice. What would I find if I went back to Roe and asked, well, who was thinking about the reproductive rights or the parental rights of women who were incarcerated? Um, what other signposts accompany the arrival of reproductive choice that Roe is so often made to symbolize um, that would give us a better sense of how in 2012 we are in this debate where there still in the mainstream is this emphasis on reproductive choice being encapsulated by the right not to procreate or the right not the right not to have children um, what were the circumstances in which Roe arrived that have made it so that there are there the necessity of so many projects and advocacy committed to making family more accessible and possible for a variety of populations in the face of a number of constraints in the US like what what would we find if we took that as the starting point, as opposed to the idea that with Roe, reproductive choice arrived and sort of just moved forward um, in this neat progression. So that's, that's like the first phase of the book. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's also interesting, as you say, that there is some discussion of the difficulty of forming families uh, in the in the public eye, right? But it also kind of tends to fall on this idea of work life balance or the bur the employment costs of motherhood, whereas those issues that you're saying that you saw with the organization of you know parental rights within prisons are really not coming into this broader conversation. And something that you point out that I think is really interesting early in the book is like how do you see state neglect? <laughs> how do you study? something that isn't there versus studying something that is there. So we can see often the very blatant forms of state coercion and, you know, of course, sterilizations, that kind of thing. Uh, but how do we actually study absence? Um, and so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you approached that methodologically speaking. So how do you see absence? Yeah. Yeah. Historian? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, and thank you for like, so lovely. So like encapsulating one of the major points of the book in such like an incredible way. Um, it's always like rewarding when people actually, you know, like what <laughs> you were trying to say was legible and can be. It made sense. It made sense. <laughs> <laughs> it always feels great. Um, 
But yeah, I, I think that, you know, that gets a little bit at a later stage or phase of the book, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I knew by the time the dissertation was wrapping up that one of the things I was interested in exploring in all of the chapters or and also methodologically was, um, you know, something I saw in the archives a lot when I was looking at... Um, for example, the I looked at the National Organization for National Organization of Women's Legal Defense Education Fund papers, and they when I was researching the chapter on crisis pregnancy centers, and they were talking about how um, they got so many more donations when they publicized the the sort of um, really intimidating and hostile and sometimes violent practices of pro-life or anti-choice activists that like the donations came streaming in and that I saw early on in the research and it kind of like keyed me into this question that you've articulated for the listeners of like we think about reproductive rights so often as like a battlefield or a the war on women or this you know protracted effort over who will have control and that all of those frameworks focus a lot on explicit, uh, often aggressive acts of coercion or force, either at the hands of the state or the church or private actors even, um, that try to overtake people's reproductive decision makings or at least direct them in certain ways. And that I saw in the in the archives, of course, but also in the literature a lot. And I wanted to think about, well, what would you know, that, that A, leaves a lot of things unexplored and B, raises this interesting like methodological question that you've outlined, but also political question of why is it that it seems so easy for people to mobilize around a very clear, explicit, uncomplicated villain um, and so much harder, like what would we need, what kind of evidence or narrative would we need to have an equally... Uh, forceful mobilization around the impact of neglect, which of course is another source of immense harm. And so that was where state neglect came from. Um, And as you say, in the introduction, I ask like, well, how do we see this thing that is absence? And that, and the answer to that is really like the final phase of the book where I realized that what I really was interested in was tracing um, how much like the the increase of and the diversification of reproductive labor that is forced really by absence. So if the state has if the state is distributing nothing but violence and neglect or at least, disproportionately that is what it is distributing when it comes to family making in a variety of areas then one outcome of that is that families will need to work harder and in more ways to make ends meet to maintain custody to provide the basic necessities um to overcome uh illness that there are all of these things that will all of these labors that will have to be undertaken to make family remain possible in the face of absence or lack of support and um you know that that is that was my methodological answer i suppose to this conundrum of visibilizing state neglect and that's why the book is organized in the way that it is of every chapter focusing on a particular type of labor that um, a particular type of neglect produced. And of course, I also talk about um, in the book the that there is always going to be a limit to, to one's labor power. And when one reaches those limits and those limits collide with the neglect that has been created, um, there are also going to be a series of costs that come from that situation. And so I also answered it methodologically by saying, well, I, I want people to think about this book as a tallying of the costs that stem from refusing 
to treat family making as something worthy of investment, to treat it something akin to a public good, um, you know, a general refusal to make reproductive freedom, um, particularly as reproductive justice activists have envisioned it, uh, to have that remain out of reach for so many. Thanks. Yeah. And I want to maybe get into a couple of examples of that, these different forms of neglect uh, that you talk about. So maybe we'll start with the the question of legal neglect, which you explore in the first chapter, kind of case study, um, which looks at the legal barriers facing lesbian women in the 1970s who are hoping to four families. And you have this great comic strip uh, from a lesbian journal in which a woman named Maggie is inseminating herself in the back of her friend's car uh, while, while crossing the Bay Bridge. And I thought that was a, a, a particularly kind of great moment, but also a symbol of all of, you know, kind of the problems that are leading this to be the situation in which someone is making a family. So can you maybe tell us what's going on there? I mean, why is this woman artificially inseminating herself? And and what does this tell us about this larger question of family making and legal neglect? Yeah, um, that's a great place to start and a great um, archive archival material to to pull out from that chapter. But I, you know, I think that people who are familiar, scholars and activists who are familiar with um, efforts um, prompted or pursued by um, lesbians who were active in feminist health activism of the 1970s, they, I think there's a general understanding of this story of, well, for one, first and foremost, right, lesbians, and all unmarried women, lesbian or not, are um, do not have access to artificial insemination by donor um, because physicians do not believe physicians are medical gatekeepers of this practice um, until the mid 1980s when sperm banks realized that uh, there's a viable uh, market to be had in actually treating and making the treatment accessible to lesbians and single women. Um, and so the fact that this is a practice that is inaccessible through uh, formal medical channels means that some activists in the health, the women's health movement realize that well, if we've been sort of tracking our cycles and we've been administering menstrual extraction and we've been getting to like have all of this medical knowledge of our reproductive capacities to prevent childbirth and pregnancy, perhaps we could reverse that and figure out how to conceive on our own terms. And it turns out that artificial insemination by donor is not a par- particularly high-tech process and so that practice starts to get distributed and Maggie inseminating on the Bay Bridge is representative I would say of just how low-tech the practice is and that was one of the main things that lesbians who engaged in this practice really emphasized to one another like the empowering nature of um, administering a form of Medic of medical treatment that was denied to them because of a judgment that, you know, a, a nuclear, a proper family is a family headed by a man and, you know, maintained in the home by a wife. And that, I think, if you know anything about the literature, is maybe a familiar story for people. Um, and there's great work by Laura Mamo, for example, um, in her first book, Queering reproduction where she talks about lesbians who move from this DIY approach into fertility treatments. And why does this happen? Because lesbians don't actually have an infertility issue. They have a sperm or semen source issue. And that book, I think, really caught my attention because I thought, you know, she she is a medical sociologist. She makes this argument about um, the rise of biomedical intervention and kind of how we all are many different demographics are kind of made uh, consumers of our own reproductive health and reproductive practices with the rise of biomedicine. But I was curious about the legal story behind this. And what I found in approaching it from that angle was that um, part of, you know, this was an incredibly empowering practice 
medically speaking, sort of a DIY feminist health approach to making sure that one could conceive on their own terms and then, right, by extension, creating the families that they most wanted to see, but, um, or what I call in the chapter fatherless families. But that is not as neat of a story, legally speaking. And so I talk about in the book about, in the chapter about how um, while women might not have been terribly interested in fathers, the state and the law were because of this idea of paternity being very important for determining who will actually take care of and provide for this child. And so something that lesbians immediately raise upon undertaking this practice is how can I be sure that I will be the sole guardian of this child? How can I have insurance that whoever is the donor will not come back and decide that they maybe want custody or visitation rights? Um, And Maggie goes through this deliberation in the comic strip that you mentioned of trying to figure out how can I make sure that this child that I've worked so hard to conceive will be mine and I will have full custody. And so the book, that chapter is exploring um, changes in uh, parentage law that make, you know, in some cases, thanks to the work of the Lesbian Rights Project, Um, and feminist lesbian attorneys who work there who really focus on this issue. In some ways, like, there is a pathway that emerges to shoring up one's parental status, uh, but the chapter is also kind of interested in exploring unintended consequences of that for people who might not want to, who might not go through those formal medical legal channels, um, to and and the way that they are then vulnerable to custody suits and also to state intervention of their family making practices if they choose to or don't aren't even aware of those more formal channels that is a product of um, legal advocacy on the part of lesbian attorneys that I chart in the chapter. So that that's kind of an overview of the chapter. Yeah. Um, well, and. It was interesting to me the point you made that, you know, there there's kind of that trade-off of getting more security by going through a medical, you know, going through an official kind of center and having a, a medical, but then it also sets up doctors as gatekeepers to the to the process and maybe makes it also more financially inaccessible. So you're kind of, you know, you're kind of gaining legal security but losing some of that independence. Now... Yeah, and so in the following chapters, you also explore the challenges of women trying to create and raise families while in prison or when struggling with slashes to welfare support and lack of access to medical care, uh, which, as you point out, and obviously we we know this has contributed to exceptionally high rates of infant mortality, uh, particularly in Black communities. Now, there's a lot in those chapters, so I, I don't think we'll be able to cover it cover it all, but one concept that really stood out to me that kind of, I thought, captured a lot of what was missing from debates and, and also, um, you know, the cumulative effects of this, of these issues was this concept of weathering. So there's this public health researcher, Arlene Geronimus, who talks about weathering and kind of challenges some of the, the assumptions of the field at the time. So I wondered if you could maybe explain this uh, research and, and how it reflects those larger uh, problems contributing to, to infant mortality. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, this is another kind of great example of how, as I was saying, the book kind of came together in so many different phases because the chapter on debates over Black infant mortality really was was not a chapter that was in the dissertation. I worked on it after getting the PhD and, um, you know, I was reading in the news about the growing attention to the racial disparity in rates of infant mortality and there, you know, there were some sort of more profile type pieces on Arlene Geronimos, um, who you've mentioned. And so I, that was another moment where I was like, well, what, what is the history behind this, um, 
contemporary event that is getting more and more attention, um, again, it thinks in no small part to the reproductive justice movement. And so I, I didn't actually know, to be honest, that weathering and dranos would be a part of that chapter. It was just sort of like the catalyst for asking about the history behind the current debate. Um, and for listeners who aren't aware or familiar with this concept, um, this is really a, an idea that Geronimos and others, she's not alone in this, but like have spent decades of their career um, building towards and trying to figure out how um, various types of environmental stress take a physiological toll on the body. And Geronimos starts her research looking um, at the different health outcomes, especially maternal and child health out outcomes for black women and white women and finds that um, for that basically one of the things that leads her especially to the weathering concept is the finding that particularly for black women, their pregnancy outcomes had a higher, had better, sort of better outcomes the younger they were in a pregnancy versus the their peers of the same age group, their white peers of the same age group, sorry, excuse me. And so she starts to develop a theory about that can sort of account for why this might be the case that at least when she's doing these comparative studies that for um, at least in some of the studies she's she does that black women have a um, even in their younger years even you know teen teenagers who are pregnant that they can tend to have better pregnancy outcomes than their white peer group and this lead because of the period in which she is conducting this research um this like brings her into volatile debates that are happening over the quote-unquote issue of teen pregnancy which is not always made explicitly to be talking that it is addressing black teen mothers but is of course coded as a an issue that supposedly only impacts um black women and that is sort of how Geronimos makes her way into the historical narrative that I trace in the chapter. And she is ridiculed for proposing the idea, at the time she's ridiculed for proposing the idea that this idea of weathering, that there could be an accumulation of environmental stressors on the body that take the form of um, you know, a physical, physiological toll that she is examining in terms of reproductive health and particularly maternal and child health outcomes. Um, but she, of course, now, as we know, her and others who have done research related to this topic um, have, it's widely accepted that various types of stressors, including economic insecurity, including forms of structural racism, can be evidenced at the level of the body and this i found you know to be an interesting um the chapter doesn't start there it's actually starts with groups like the coalition to fight infant mortality in oakland california and the maternity care coalition in philadelphia pennsylvania which are two groups that start to address black infant mortality in the late 1970s um but the, you know, for example, the Coalition to Fight Infant Mortality, which is an outgrowth of the Third World Women's Alliance Bay Area chapter, have a very similar analysis as Geronimo's, just not embedded in bio, in sort of epidemiological language. They um, indict the, they indict um, the East Oakland's Black infant mortality problem um, as a product of the intersection of white supremacy, capitalism, and, uh, and misogyny in society. And they obviously have a more clear target in the campaign that they wage against Highland Hospital that the chapter talks about. But they, I, I think, or I make the argument in the chapter that 
there is this way that they anticipate some of the theories that give that are more given a valence of legitimacy because they emerge from public health models um, as they analyze sort of what are what is the cause of this um, of what they call infanticide by neglect. That's the catch the slogan that the third um, that the coalition to fight infant mortality uses in its campaign against Highland and also the County Board of Supervisors for Alameda County in the Bay Area. Um, so they, you know, weathering is the epidemiological concept that circulates in our current discourse, but the chapter is interested in thinking about what prefigured that in other places, and also in highlighting kind of the again, the unintended consequences or the pros and cons of relying um, on these more statistical or epidemiological measurements to wage a campaign against something as complex and devastating and sort of all-encompassing, right? Because health is not only rooted in the physical body, but like is impacted by all of these environmental constraints, um, that that campaign, waging such a campaign, had a lot of challenges built into it that the chapter explores. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, and, and particularly as you point out, I mean, of course, there's a demand for better prenatal health care but which, which then is met to some extent. I mean, there is an increase in prenatal healthcare, even as you point out under Reagan, which, which might be, you know, surprising, but that is accompanied by this slashing of welfare budgets, which, so then, you know, you kind of lose that more holistic set of demands that these women were, or these, these coalitions were arguing for and, and, you know, reduce it just, as you say, to the health kind of dynamic rather than the larger environmental causes. And of course, then we really see how this all comes to a head in the chapter on the HIV AIDS crisis, uh, where we see uh, how you put it as cum cumulative neglect of housing insecurity, you know, the loss of welfare support, depressed wages, everything create this, this crisis situation. Yeah. Yeah, so by the time, you know, we get to the early years of the AIDS epidemic, uh, we've really, of, of course, there's Reagan and the sort of austerity politics, at least for so as far as social welfare budget is concerned. I think that's, you know, well known. But we also know that the, the creep of right-wing conservatism and then neoliberalism predates Reagan. And so I thought it was important by the time we get to the early years of the AIDS epidemic to kind of take stock of um, the accumulation of those policy decisions that have made, you know, have made unemployment and underemployment increase, have made the real value of welfare decrease, the real value of wages decrease, 
um, as you mentioned, a, an unprecedented rise in family homeless, what's called family homelessness. Um, and that all of, I mean, not to mention, of course, um, attacks on civil rights protections that is also kind of the Reagan administration is infamous for. And so I wanted to contextualize, give the broader kind of contextual picture in which the epidemic arrives from the perspective of um, women and families who are most impacted by the epidemic. And so I try to tell that story through, uh, as the other chapters do in different areas, try to tell that story through the lens of um, the additional labors that families and especially women, whether they are biological mothers or caretakers of other, of both partners and children, um, the extra labors that they have to take on to kind of keep that cumulative neglect at, keep that tide kind of at a distance while also attempting to navigate oftentimes their own um, positive diagnosis, also the positive diagnosis of family members and the, you know, the various, um, the various, what's the word that I am looking for, um, forms that those labors take. So sometimes I think you could think about the chapter like in kind of two parts, the, you know, sometimes that labor is in the form of just um, creating if on the part of advocates who are paying attention to this problem at the time, creating services that are actually attentive to women's reproductive labor demands and obligations. Um, and so I talk about some early projects that emerge to address especially um, poor and working class women of color who are impacted by the epidemic and who like can't remove their familial obligations from the equation. And in the second part of the chapter, looking at um, what I call the labor of risk and the um, uh, the requirement or additional ob burden that women who are attempting to seek treatment through clinical trials encounter um, when they realize that they can't, they can't actually get access to the earliest phase of clinical trials because of an FDA guideline that bars women of childbearing age from participation in phase one and two trials and the campaign to reverse that guideline that um, the HIV law project takes on. So there, again, as with every chapter and as with the book as a whole, there's really an attempt to push on what obviously, you know, Marxist feminists and theorists of social reproduction have always talked about as um, reproductive labor. I, I think generally we talk about that as family, you know, reproducing children, taking care of children and loved ones, taking care of sick and elderly people. But um, all of the things required of that project change depending on the historical context and depending on the specific constraint or constraints one is facing. And so throughout the book, I'm really asking us to expand what we consider reproductive labor, where it is performed, um, so in that chapter, as you point out, it's performed not only um, in the home, taking care of a sick loved one, um, but also at the site of the clinical trial where you're attempting to kind of use this, um, get access to experimental treatment as a life-saving technology or, or strategy. Um, and and just how those labors kind of amount and multiply uh, throughout the various parts of the book. Yeah, and I mean, the, the question of the clinical trials I found also really interesting because uh, kind of connected to your larger point, we do hear about the cases of abuse within clinical trials, you know, women who were used, you know, had different contraceptives tested on them or you know, the Tuskegee experiment, these kinds of examples, which of course then make 
people in marginalized communities kind of hesitant to uh, engage in these clinical trials, but then it was interesting to see this other perspective of, well, what happens then if you're totally left out, uh, and particularly in this context, context of the AIDS crisis. Um, but I wanted to return, actually, uh, to think about another example that you give of all this kind of reproductive labor that then goes into trying to make families and keep them, keep them alive in such precarious contexts. And of course, the context of prison is one of the, you know, the most precarious you can think of. Um, and I was really interested by this MATCH program that you described that runs in the late, 19, late 1970s and, and 1980s. So can you maybe tell us a bit more about that program, uh, what it entailed, what happened to it, and maybe how it fits into the larger story? Yeah, of course. Um, so you know, this is going back to <clears throat> the second chapter of the book where I look at prisons as a site, uh, yet another site of neglect and what I call carceral neglect in the book. And um, Prison Match, which stands for Prison Mothers and Their Children Together, um, is an, a program that emerges in the late 1970s at a federal prison for women in Pleasanton, California. Um, and um, it is the idea of two women who are both work in early childhood development who want to figure out, you know, what happens when, what happens to women's children when they go, when they're incarcerated and serving a sentence. And so, they structure, they, they are able to start this program um, mostly because the warden at the time is sympathetic enough or at least interested in, in allowing um, the prison to serve as kind of an experiment for a program, but also because one of them has ties to um, a funding organization that can provide most of the operational costs. And so it's not really costing the BOP any money to run it. And it's really, I think, you know, uh, in terms of um, programs that get started inside of prisons, I think pretty remarkable for the, for how much of a role incarcerated women had in running the running of the program um, and in, you know, making decisions, key decisions about what the program would focus on. And one of the main things that it, it manages to do is that it creates a children's center within the prison where um, children and their mothers can come and visit for um, basically, you know, a full day on Saturday and a full day on Sunday, which is, an ex you know, especially if anyone pays attention now to kind of just the draconian and punitive approach to visitation rights um, that incarcerated people have have access to, that that was quite a remarkable achievement and that there's freedom of movement and there's a focus on early childhood education, both for the participants of the program who are incarcerated and kind of um, how to how to make it possible that you can maintain this intimate bond from a space of incarceration, but also across such immense distance. And um, obviously this is an incredible act of um, coordination and perseverance just to even get foster parents or whoever might, whatever guardian is taking care of the child at any given time to get them to come every weekend to the center to um, make sure that there is an educational component that, you know, many, the, some incarcerated women decided that they really wanted skills that they could use upon release. And so they build in an early childhood development certificate program as part of the program, the overall program. Um, but of course, like so many of the conditions that the book, I guess, demoralizingly charts, um, the problems that incarcerated women are facing just kind of keep on mounting beyond the capacity of the the staff that is comprised of, you know, it's an inside-outside staff 
that they can address. And the chapter talks about um, how this is all happening within the context of increasing, you know, the start up of mass incarceration. So the increasing criminalization and more punitive sentencing that happens across the country. This particular prison is not spared from that. And um, women are relocated to various parts of the country when the prison is kind of taken um, as it's targeted for uh, overcrowding program. And so women are now put some, many are sent to Washington state. They're far flung from their families. They don't have the aid of this program. And when staff members get, you know, start lobbying congressional officials um, for secure, you know, a guarantee that like prison match is going to have this line item that they will get the um, grant needed to continue running it while also advocating for the women who have been moved across the country away from their children, um, that it ends up that prison match ultimately gets denied uh, the line item to continue running the program. And that's sort of like where that's the story of that prison match in ends in the chapter. But just what it's trying to emphasize is how, as you've already, you know, you use the word precarious, just how precarious even these um, momentary interventions or infrastructures of care that people that I chart in the book were trying to build, um, that they were so dependent on, you know, the decision making of a particular warden or the advocacy or not of a particular congressional representative. And when, you know, the conditions got within inside the prison got to got so dire that advocates started um, being oppositional on behalf of incarcerated members of the program that that had blowback and ramifications. And I think anyone who has organized done, you know, abolitionist or anti-prison organizing that delicate balance of like maintaining access um, whilst being opposed to the entire infrastructure of of captivity that you are against is um, a constant kind of challenge of that organizing feat. And certainly that was the case for this program, Prison Match. Yeah, I really felt over the course of the book that there's this kind of closing of space, you know, of, uh, you know, to, to put forward these kinds of programs that things become more punitive. Uh, there's more undermining of the kind of social, social support system. Uh, and then you can see how of course, these organizations are trying to cover these or, you know, fill these gaps and, and cover these. But then the more they do that, the more it also relieves the state of something that should be its own duty. Right. So there's this kind of constant, constant tension that like also then, of course, creates space for things like crisis pregnancy centers, uh, which is the, the last chapter. And you, you talk about the fact that, OK, we've, you know, of course, there's been more attention to crisis pregnancy centers lately, the way that they, you know, often are, they are set up with this kind of explicit goal of dissuading uh, women from seeking out abortions by providing this emergency pregnancy care. Uh, but you argue in the chapter that they also tell us something else, uh, their existence. So can you explain what, what you see in these clinics that we've perhaps missed in our, in our conversations? Sure. So the CPC chapter sort of stands out, and I guess that's why it's the last chapter. It stands out from the rest because um, it is kind of the one, um, it is an effort that by one metric is quite successful in terms of um, weathering the kind of encroaching conservatism and neoliberalism that uh, takes such a disastrous toll on the social safety net. And um, the reason, one of the reasons for that is that crisis pregnancy centers, which um, are sometimes referred to as kind of like the service arm of the pro-life or anti-abortion movement, 
were much more able to rely on, you know, volunteer networks and donors and kind of were the most like perfectly um, embodied Reagan's, you know, Reagan's idea that the, that volunteerism rather than government should be the response to society's ills. And um, so they, they kind of tell in that way, they're distinct from the rest of the chapters in that they tell this story of, of even growth during such a period of, of sort of state retrenchment. But as you've sort of set up in your question, um, I say that one of the reason that's one of the reasons they're able to effectively fill this gap. Um, but I don't, you know, we, I try to say in the chapter that they have their own challenge that they're grappling with that has up to this point been overlooked, I think, by a lot of activists and scholars concerned with the threat that crisis pregnancy centers pose to reproductive freedom. And that challenge is that they might have immense volunteer networks and kind of donor networks that they can depend on, and they might be this grand, grand, quintessential vision of, of volunteerism. Um, but they also are attempting to combat abortion through service provision in a society that has decided family making is not worthy of any sort of serious investment. And so I tell the story of crisis pregnancy centers, um, setting out to kind of tackle this contradiction of, okay, if like the best way to combat abortion, the original kind of um, founders of the movement say is not through laws. Um, it's not through something like a human life amendment. It's through making abortion obsolete by proving to women that they're, that the right, the, ch the path they most want to choose, but just might feel like they can't because they're young, because they're single, um, is motherhood. And so what do we need to provide to be able to make that happen? And, you know, they, I, this, I come to this chapter really wanting to take what I think many people who are committed to reproductive freedom would define as political opponents to take the words of those political opponents seriously. Um, because as you've mentioned, I think crisis pregnancy centers are rightly, um, have been rightly criticized and have been documented time and time again of trafficking and anti-abortion propaganda, medically, medical inaccurate information about the health, the supposed health risks of abortion, um, stigmatizing abortion messaging, um, that especially targets black women for their reproductive decision-making. But what I chart in the chapter is that at least you know, as early as the mid-1980s, these centers are struggling with the fact that the people they most often tend to see are not women who are on the fence about abortion or who even think they're entering an abortion clinic, but are actually entering a crisis pregnancy center and need to be saved from abortion, but are people who are looking for pregnancy resources to like make it through the pregnancy for maternity clothes through big ticket items like car seats, diapers, and, and also emotional support. And, um, you know, that tension is something that the movement I think continues ha has not resolved of that. There is an ideal client and that person is, undecided or committed to getting an abortion and needs to be turned away. And that ideal client is actually not the majority of the clients that these centers see. And the movement is very explicit about this. Um, and other researchers who look at CPCs in a more contemporary, you know, from a sociological perspective have also documented this. And I, I think, you know, I really came to this this particular part of the book with like thinking about what would you find if you examined the problem of crisis pregnancy centers from a reproductive justice framework, which merged into like, well, what would you find if we thought about CPCs in the context of state neglect? And what you would find is that 
you have a very like inadequate deeply compromised service provider per filling the gaps of state neglect for family making and it's not to say that all of the things that cpcs have been accused of and high and like thoroughly documented of doing are um, not true or inaccurate. They are doing all of those things. But I think that the families that suffer most from those tactics are also the families that turn to them as a lifeline of last resort, which is how I talk about them in the book. And that to me shifts focus of like, what is the political strategy when it comes to people who are concerned about the activities of CPCs is the focus to like, keep exposing them as quote unquote, fake clinics as like a lot of campaigning has done. Um, Or is the focus to like think, take a step back and think about, well, if we actually could invest in like what would this what would society need to look like to make CPCs obsolete? Um, to sort of turn their question about abortion back around to them. What would we need to make that obsolete? What would it what kind of basic necessities would everyone have access to so that they would never have to rely on a CPC to get the aid that they currently are piecing together with other sources, both public and private? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think even in the introduction, you make this point that we'd need an entirely different value system, right? One that didn't devalue reproduction, one that valued the care of humans, saw this as, you know, labor that was worthy of, of compensation or support. Uh, but uh, I, I don't see us heading too far in that direction right now, but, but let's hope. We can always have hope. Um, okay, well, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. We've been we've been talking for a while. Uh, I wanted to just close by asking you uh, where you go from here, what what you're working on now. I know the book is just out, so you know, um, probably still recovering from, from the book process. But what are your what are your plans for research from here? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I so I. Th- I'm very like tentatively or gingerly starting, I think, a second project um, that um, looks at the persistence of home abortion or what I think is more commonly now being referred to as self-managed abortion in the decades after Roe um, to kind of challenge this idea that after Roe, all abortion immediately moved to the space of the clinic Um, And also to challenge a much more recent reality, which is that, you know, people say the future of abortion is no longer the clinic because of medical abortion and the, well, at least for the time being, the relative, relative availability of misoprostol and and mifepristone to um, end a pregnancy. And so I'm kind of, I'm hoping to figure out, to chart that story and to kind of challenge the idea that, you know, there was such an infrastructure of um, home abortion practices and sets of knowledge prior to Roe out of necessity. And I think the idea that those disappeared um, as soon as Roe was decided is unlikely and inaccurate and kind of erases, um, erases the fact that Prior to Roe, a lot of feminists engaged in reproductive health practices had a pretty strong critique of the medical establishment, and rightly so. And I don't think that that critique goes away just because Roe legal decriminalizes abortion. And so I'm curious to chart um, how that persists and also to kind of see if you can reverse engineer um, the more visible discussion that I think has happened within the last three or four years about networks of home abortion providers currently who treat clients who don't want to go to the clinic for a variety of reasons. Um, And so that is at a very early stage, but I hope that that's where my research keeps taking me. That sounds great. I mean, there's also a really interesting international angle there uh, too 
that could that could be interesting. Uh, well, thanks so much, Sarah. It was really it's really a powerful book. Uh, it's, a, it's a unique approach, but you do manage to kind of tie together what seem like you know quite different case studies really well, I think, around this question of neglect and also of the limits of choice, right? I think no one can finish the book thinking that we live in a world of free choice and, and reproductive freedom, but hopefully we can move towards that uh, in the future. So thanks again so much and, and take care. Yeah, thank you so much for your excellent questions and for your lovely words about the book. I really enjoyed talking with you. Great, thanks. Thanks.